I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And today we begin with a question. Are you change-able? Today, we investigate core characteristics that we see displayed in so many of our high performance, be it professional athletes or CEOs, adaptability. We have a mantra at Purple Patch, evolve or die. We never want to stand still, and instead we're always thirsty to seek ways to grow and improve. But with this, one thing is certain, change. Now, this might sound appealing, but it creates demand and it also creates the need for the ability to thrive within that changing environment. It certainly isn't boring, but not everyone is equipped in sport or life to manage change effectively. The good news is you can learn. And in doing so, you're sure to develop a backbone of resilience and adaptability that will guide you towards increased performance. Now, before we dive into this subject, a lot of you guys are asking, And so I have a dual opportunity here. I can give you the update on the Purple Patch Squad and I can even blend it with a little bit of selfless or shameless self-promotion. So Purple Patch Squad, a lot of you guys are knocking on the doors and asking. Well, here's the update. We have indeed successfully transitioned all of our current athletes. We are now operational on Purple Patch Squad. What is it? If you're interested and you haven't heard before, well, it's our brand new training and education program to, for time-starved athletes. All distances, Olympic distance, half Ironman and Ironman. Now, this is a program that puts you in control. It's not coaching. Instead, it's a product that provides the autonomy for you to manage your training schedule in a chaotic life of ebbs and flow. It's a year-round training and education program to enable long-term development, something I'm really passionate, but also with the race builds to guide you towards your best performance on race day. And the backbone to it, something that's always present, integrated education throughout the process with our brand new education hub. And finally, As a member of the Purple Patch Squad, you get the burden of me. You get to come behind the curtain with some live video and Q&A sessions with myself and the rest of the Purple Patch coaching team, in which we deep dive into all aspects of performance. So if you want to learn more about the squad, just head to purplepatchfitness.com. Or if you want to do an early sign up where you get to actually come on board, 99 bucks a month, purplepatchfitness.com just email us info at purplepatchfitness.com and we'll include you in a little beta program over the next two weeks we're going to incrementally add a block of athletes and then we release it to the world so if you want to be first in the door info at purplepatchfitness.com and hopefully we can squeeze you in and get you involved now if you're not a triathlete or if you're already immersed in your own program or have a coach great all good feel free to just join us at the Community and Education Program. You see, you can now participate with much of what we talked about from above just without the training prescription side of stuff. We have a completely redesigned education program for performance-minded individuals, really the bridge between this show and actually getting in and participating in the education progress with us, the coaches. 
And so if this show isn't quite enough and you want to have some live time with myself and the other Purple Patch coaches, or if you want to dig deeper into other educational areas, join the Purple Patch Education Program. It's all live now on purplepatchfitness.com. Now, outside of that, shameless promotion over, what should we do now? Anyone got any ideas? Let's open it up to the live audience. You guys in the back row, anyone? Give me the jingle. Give me the jingle. All right, it is. Here we go, guys. It's the jingle. Let's do word of the week. We like the way he thinks. Serious with the way. Let's open the book. It's time to take a peek. It's the dictionary word of the week. And the word of the week this week is running. Running off the bike, that is. You see, this last weekend I was up at Ironman Santa Rosa, an absolutely wonderful race, spectacular bike course, a downtown square setting for T2, as they call it, the transition between bike and run, and of course the finishing line. I think it's one of the best races on the circuit, and as an age group only race, no pros racing in this race, it provided a chance for the best amateurs to shine. We had a wonderfully large contingent of athletes, Enjoyed a nice pre-race meetup the day prior where I saw many of the Purple Patch athletes. And on race day, I got to see some of the bike and then I stationed myself about three quarters of a mile into the start of the run course. So now athletes have swum 3.8 kilometers. They've ridden 180 kilometers and they see me about a kilometer into the run. Three quarters of a mile for the Yankee Poodles and the Brits that are listening. Now, I did this for a reason. I stood out there in the sun being very, very brave, I want to point out. But what I wanted to do is watch the lead runners settle into pace. And I wanted to monitor two things, form and mindset, as much as you can looking into someone's mind and not asking them. I always feel like it's a little learning opportunity, a refresh to see how things actually go. And I got to watch about the first hundred or so runners coming off the bike, front of pack, the front people. And I was keeping an eye on attitude, form, and, of course, spring in the step. So why three quarters of a mile? Well, there is a reason for that as well. And that's that no athlete following 180 kilometers on the bike and a 3.8 kilometer swim prior is going to be what I would call into their run yet. So they're in the process of finding their feet. Now, if you've never done an Ironman, this phase feels a little bit like your body almost being detached from your legs. You're floating up in the sky with your upper body, and yet your legs feel like they're trudging through thick mud. Not very pleasant. So what did I see as we ran into this? Well, there's going to be a lot of athletes today and tomorrow and the next day having conversations with their buddies and their friends or their coaches And they're going to be saying, I had a great swim and bike, but I really need to work on my run. I've got to focus on my run. And for some, that might be true. But for many of the first 100, it was very clear to me that the answer of their poor run was actually more related to probably their bike resilience and their pacing of that bike relative to the fitness and as well, of course, potentially their swim fitness and resilience than it was actually their running training. And for other, there might be a mindset challenge as well because it wasn't hard to see so many caving emotionally because of those immediate sensations, seemingly doing little over the 100 or 150 yards that I got to watch them run by me individually, seemingly doing little to try and solve their current challenging. 
I saw shaking heads, poor posture, verbally shouting to friends, it's over. And yet, it's just the beginning. The lesson in this, this is the sport. For you triathletes that are listening, swim, bike and run, one sport. And your run performance isn't isolated to your run training. And a big part of the challenge to performance is your prevailing mindset and commitment to solving problems that are put in front of you. Swim, bike, run, one sport. Train and race as a single entity and then solve problems all day. You want a great triathlon performance but have struggled in the run? Don't jump to simply piling on more running miles and assuming that success will come. And that is why this week, the word of the week is running. So now let's hit the aid station. In this aid station, we're serving the meat and potatoes. Changeable. Let me tell you a story about a man, a man named Joe. Joe's got a good job, stable, richly enjoyable life and happens to have a passion for cars. He only owns one and ironically practical with purchases, but he loves to study and learn about cars. The cars that he's enamored with at the moment is the Tesla and he's been saving up his money to purchase a brand new car of his dreams. His current car, the trusty VW Golf. Very good car, dependable, simple and he knows where everything is. 130,000 miles in, 10 years old, it's time for a change. Joe, he makes the leap. In Tesla style, the car is delivered to his house. He gets into the pristine car with all of its features and large screen TV size front dash and his palms start to get sweaty. It's a mixture of excitement but also fear. He can't even work out how to turn the darn thing on. Everything is new. Buttons everywhere. Joe's reaction? Give me back my golf. At least I know how to turn the thing on. Joe leans back into familiarity. He pushes against the overwhelming new features of the Tesla. The change created a barrier and his reaction is to hold on to the past. Of course, Joe stayed. He sat in the car. He worked it out. And now he loves his car. He can't imagine a life without it. An obvious little story. But you would have viewed Joe as insane if he'd really turned away from the Tesla and gone back to the rickety golf. But now let's consider a classic example in the athletic world. Let's talk about Julie. And as ever, I changed the name a little bit. We don't like to do public shaming here. But Julie reached out for coaching about two years ago. And the initial conversation, what can I do for you? Well, from the conversation, a few takeaways of what was happening with Julie. She was in training incredibly hard but had no progression of race performance. The training and the performance globally didn't mesh with her life. Her coach at the time was prescribing big hours every single weekend of every single week. So she got to see less and less of her family and certainly had a limited and limited broader life side of things. She walked around in a fog of fatigue, always tired, no rest days, no rejuvenation. Every day just felt hard. 
The headline news for Julie? Sick of training, feeling like it was a monkey on the back, tired of the big hours at steady state, frustrated at a lack of return of investment of those hours measured by race results. She wasn't improving in sport and she certainly wasn't thriving in life. I think for many of you guys I could say, sound familiar? She was ready to go to the next level and she was excited in concept to change her approach and fit into life. Or was she? You see, change is hard. And let me let you into a dirty secret here. Most people are not naturally adaptable and adept at thriving in a changing environment. Most prefer familiarity, even if familiarity isn't positive, and they're not aware that they will lean into that familiarity. It's a paradox, but it's an observed truth. So let's come back to Julie. Now, it's not tough for us to diagnose the training side of things. Within the context of her busy life, she was training too much with a lack of variance in training, and she was burdened with that horrible word, monotony. With all of her other supporting habits being pretty good, sleep, nutrition, etc., it was seemingly a relatively easy passage to boost her performance. Without being too granular, the global intervention that I threw at Julie was, number one, reduce the global training hours in any given week. Number two, ensure that she had selective blocks of higher volume work as needed for her race, so occasionally hit it, but really plan out those blocks of of work. And then finally, number three, have highly differentiated training days. Some very, very tough episodes and some very, very easy episodes of training, all with a specific and key identified purpose. We wanted to provide space. We wanted to provide opportunity for time with family and enable her to have easier planning and life integration while retaining training effectiveness. All very purple patch, you might say. But then came the pushback. Give me my VW Golf back. The highly common reaction to cling to familiarity. The reaction that we got from Julie, am I fit enough? Do I need more miles and hours? I feel guilty for doing not enough. The tendency to start to creep extra sessions and extra hours or bring the bottom up, starting to go too hard on the easy days, striving towards the old sensations, even though she suffered, even though she didn't yield performance. It was the validation that she got from it. You see, Julie needed more than just change. She needed to buy into the change and understand what it would mean for her. So we're going to come back to her story later within context, but let's go into that concept change, but let's go through two lenses. Let me give you a little education or insight from the lens of the coach or the leader, if we're thinking about it in a corporate setting, and also come from the other side of the thanks from the athlete or what you might call the employee lens. So as a leader, How do you enact change or evolution? What's the best route to do it? Well, first we need to look at the process of change because 
that will help us identify a very common mistake. In fact, one that I did with Julie in our case study. Come to that in a minute. So the first process of the change is the what and why. We need to identify what needs to change and why. And typically, your most successful leader is if you can anchor that to the global mission and path. This is what we need to change, and this is the reason why. If you do that, and it fits within the overall mission, and then change can be successful. The second component then is what does this actually mean for the athlete or the employee? We must clarify and facilitate meaning. How does this affect you and what are the positive changes that you're going to get out of it by investing into it? The third, how is the change then going to occur and what actually needs to happen? So this is the action part of the process. This is what the change is and this is what we are going to do to facilitate it. And then finally, the outcomes. What do we expect to occur from the change? Now, the biggest mistake out of this process, identifying the what and why, what does it mean to the athlete or the employee, how is change going to occur and what's the action that needs to actually happen, and then finally the outcome. The biggest mistake, the one that I made with Julie, is most most coaches begin their communication with step three. All right, troops, this is the change and this is what needs to happen. We move straight into action either because of efficiency or because we've been so immersed in steps one and two, identifying the what and why and what it means to actually happen or create this change, that we're already familiar with the process and the meaning. We've already got buy-in because we're taking the leadership role. And so it's very, very easy and a classic mistake just to come out to the broadcast. This is the change. And this is what needs to happen. This is what I need you, the athlete or the employee, to do. Just what I did with Julie. I could see that she was overcooked. I could understand the actions that she needs to do. And I went straight to prescription. Go easier, go lighter, etc. I didn't have buy-in. I didn't have clarity of role. So when coaches move with their communication of step three, what the change is, what needs to happen, moving straight to action. This always leads to athlete or employee confusion. And if you're confused and you're not bought in without clarity, it's going to create resistance. Why are you asking me to do this? What happened to my old way? Give me my VW back. You see, it takes mission to invest in change for athletes, employees. Also, everyone, we are all human beings, need to know what it means for me. Why should I invest in the process of change? In a positive way, what's in it for me? Not in a selfish way, but in a positive way. Change is difficult. It's always a process. So why should I invest in facilitating this change. Let's come back to Julie. So if you remember, she arrived excited for an evolved approach. But when that change happened, she struggled. She was lured into adding more hours, sneaking extra sessions, working too hard on the easy sessions. Now, I mentioned 
change is hard. Julie was struggling. So what could I, as a leader, help guide Julie towards becoming more change-able? Well, what we talked about was evolving her training. And remember, I even said in the story, it was seemingly and relatively easy passage to boost her performance. That's a practical action step. It's an easy step. All I need to do is undertrain her relative to overtraining her, give her a bit more rest, and give her a bit more variety. She's probably going to improve physically. And so, yes, from a prescriptive standpoint, it was, as I quote, seemingly a relatively easy passage to boost performance. But that focused on the process, or as the Americans say, the process. It was the action. For me to be successful as a leader or a coach with Julie, I need to take a step back and help enable buy-in. And ultimately with buy-in, confidence or courage for Julie. She had to, had to buy into the change. Now, of course, the backbone of this means education and a tight alignment between coach and athlete. For Julie, this meant that I had to provide perspective. And so what we did was identify the prior approach, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and establish, or ultimately get buy-in, on the weak points and the consequences of the weak points of the prior approach. Now, we won't dive into it here, but too many hours, no time for family, not enough variety of intensity and focus, etc. And then with Julie really identifying the consequences if she continues on this path. So what is the future predictive of following these paths and habits? Now, this is typically not a particularly challenging thing to do if things are not already going well. But ultimately, what we had to do was paint a picture of the challenges faced. And then from this, create the solution. So we wanted to paint a picture of what it meant for Julie if we enacted this change. What are the positive expected outcomes for her? What are the results that we can anticipate? And how will the change impact her? And this is beyond results. This isn't just, oh, you're going to go faster. But I would lean on here the ability to create consistency, enjoyment, energy management, even the overused word, of a bit of balance in life and ultimately provide the context of longevity and performance. So now Julie has the full picture and she is armed with understanding her role and that becomes really important. And it's only with that buy-in, this is the path you're on and if we make this change and this is what is required to make the change and then we can anticipate A, B, C and D. And with that, you think that sounds good. If you remember Joe, Joe, your car is great. You love Teslas and if you get your Tesla, this is what it's going to provide you with value to your life. Me? not really a Tesla man myself, but I have empathy and I can actually understand the joy that it will bring to Joe. So invest in learning the dials and the knobs and the controls so that you can maximize your experience with your new toy. Very, very basic, obviously, a very basic example from me there. But now with that buy-in, 
with that understanding of role and what's needed, now we have the opportunity to dive into actions. Remember, that's where many coaches begin and therefore they struggle with trust, buy-in, commitment, as without the context, the actions become meaningless. So what was actually required of Julie? Julie, for you to get the outcomes that we talked about, your role and what we need you to do here is to invest, and that's a big part of change and evolution, the willingness to actually invest in something to create the change. And what that meant is behavior change in key areas that are challenging. So for Julie, to be effective, you need to do X, Y, and Z, not go too hard, not add more hours, have trust, embrace the additional time that you have and not fill it with unnecessary stuff. We need to focus on fueling, et cetera, et cetera. That is the investment, the behavior change and actions that need to occur. Now, Some of the principal habits and approaches are not intuitive to Julie, hence they are challenging. But remember our phrase, evolve or die. That's why we have the phrase at Purple Patch. You can carry on down the same road, but you're going to get the same results. And so evolution and change that comes with it is challenging, but it's about behavior change and habit evolution so that we can reap the reward. And all of this is tied to her mission. And she wants to improve in the sport and thrive in life with great health and to be there with her kids and family. And that is the long-term reward or the carrot that as a team, we all get drawn towards. Okay, great. That's the leadership side of stuff. That's how you as a coach can facilitate change. Explain what it means, why it needs to change, Develop the role and mission behind it and then move to the action side of stuff. But what about from the athlete lens? So how can we equip Julie to change? What's needed on her side? What does she need to learn to become more resilient and adaptable in the ever-evolving environment that she lives in? Well, let's go step by step to frame the advancement of resilience and how to become, my favorite word, changeable. Step one, and this sounds very basic, but I think it's the most important step. Appreciate that change isn't easy. Cast your mind back to the silly story of the VW and the Tesla. Most would think it's a no-brainer that the Tesla is a superior car, and yet sitting in it for the first time elicited fear for Joe. Adaptability and resilience develops through an appreciation that it isn't just hard, and so therefore something to resist, but also that it typically is inevitable and necessary. There is a reason that we have a central part of our approach anchored around evolution or evolve or die, because to evolve is to change, and that's the only way that we can grow. And so your mindset will be the primer to enable effective evolution. And the only way to create the right frame of mind is to understand and embrace the fact that change is a part of growth. And so therefore it's inevitable and also appreciate at the same time, it's not going to be easy. 
Even if it's positive change, it's always going to be a challenge. And so step number one, set the mind to the right place. Step number two is to develop clarity and direction. Whether you're an athlete or an employee, your best path for success is to gain clarity and create a path for yourself. What does this mean for me? What are the expected outcomes? What is my role and contribution? And how can I make that a positive? Rather than just resist or refuse change, lean into it. And the key to this is to not be reactive or passive. Instead, be inquisitive and proactive. Ask questions, seek to understand, set a path of what is required of success within this changing environment. The second part of it, assume a positive mindset. When things are tough, like change always is, it's too easy to dismiss or react. But if you begin with a presumption to seek understanding, then you're going to be equipped and empowered to understanding that making a decision to the level that you can embrace the change. And so don't be reactive and passive, be proactive and inquisitive, and ultimately assuming a positive mindset. That's why people always talk about the great key component of the growth mindset. Step number three, a critical element, rolling the sleeves up, invest. Assuming that you're on board with the change and that you understand the bigger picture of why the change is happening and your role within the change. And then step number three, the mission is to invest. And in this set a timeline. Now the absolute core or key components of your role and then be very, very patient for the results because any type of change should, if it's of any value at all, take time. So there is the element. Remember, we went back all the way. Understand the why, what your role is it, then take action. It's the same on the opposing side as the athlete or the employee. Get clarity and direction. Understand it's going to be challenging and then roll your sleeves up. Lean into it and don't expect it to be easy and understand that it's going to mean change and change is always difficult. And finally, the final component, results within context. I would encourage you not to seek immediate results, positive or negative. Don't dismiss if it's tougher than you imagine. Don't celebrate too much if you get immediate positive returns, because ultimately, even if it's the best thing in the world, change stretches us. So set the mind to longer term evolution and growth. And so with that side of stuff, we're coming back to Julie. Change is not only inevitable, it is a part of the world that we live in, athletically or in the corporate setting. And yet, if you go step by step as a leader or an athlete, as a coach or an employee, you're going to be successful. It's a part of the fabric and why it's one of my 10 characteristics of excellence in elite performers. Adaptability, being change able. It's a learned behavior, but it's fundamental to longevity and success. And so with that, let's get a little broader. Let's ask, 
a few questions. And remember, always eager to answer your questions as much as we can cram them into the show. So if you do have a question, it's info at purplepatchfitness.com and we'll try and get to it as much as possible. So we've got a couple of related questions here and very good timing for the week because of the word of the week this week from both Zachary and Seth. And so let's go to Zachary Josie first. Zachary, not being able to run well off the bike. My name is Zach. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm the little guy with dwarfism who always bugs you with praise on social media. Zach, thank you very much. Always see it. Fantastic. I've actually seen some of your uh, your race finishes and your, uh, your pictures on uh, social media. So I've got a, a sneaky follow of you. Anyway, you just finished Ironman 70.3 St. George, a wonderful race and very challenging, I want to point out. But considering how hard that course is, and 50% of credit to the podcast, thank you very much, I had my best race to date. However, with each race, my run has been getting a little worse. And in St. George, it's actually terrible for my standards. I know that biking harder could be some of it. But there are other are there other reasons? I do three to four runs a week at different tempos and paces, and as and then and open up the length as the season progresses. But after a race, I just start that plan again. Is there any thought? Thanks for the podcast and all the great advice. Well, this is a question that's a little challenging to answer without deeper context, of course, and so. I have to, in many ways, keep it quite general because I can't specifically say for you and your situation, Zach, this is what the challenge should be. But as I mentioned in Word of the Week, quite often people jump to the running component of it. I came off the bike and I run poorly, so therefore I need to work on my run. And that could be true. That quite often is. Uh, One of the things that I would imagine seeing you actually visibly on your social media as well as just understanding dwarfism a little bit, uh, it could well be uh, an element of run resilience and I would say specifically strength-based running. So when you think about a course like St. George, which is all uphill or all downhill, are you doing your terrain running on variable grades? Because I would do a lot of terrain management, high leg speed running, and a lot of strength-based running in there. I'd also get really equipped and look at running off the bike. There are some schools of thought to say never run off the bike, but I think it's a wonderfully time-efficient way to add running volume or, or duration to your week without overloading the time schedule. So I do a lot of running of getting up to speed quickly. So shorten the time between coming off of the prone position of sitting in time trial position and getting standing upright with good posture into running. So good leg speed quickly. We do a lot of training at over speed or over intensity. So in the key sessions coming faster off the bike and going much above race pace and then settling back to pace, either through pyramids or speed changes. But we want to train you specifically in the demands of coming off of the bike. And finally, for you, you might look at one stage, not to be paradoxical to my word of the week, you might look at doing a little more run frequency. So it might just be a little bit of run resilience. And so you can add, if time allows, some low stress, good form based running, sneaking off the bike or otherwise, that you just develop the musculoskeletal and neural connection of good form. And then 
with the overall headline news plan that you have staying in there, a little bit of tempo, a little bit of speed, you should slowly come to it. But quite often, bike, bike, bike. Don't change your course, keep driving on the run and maybe the run is getting there. So I wish you best of luck. I hope it goes well. I know it's a a relatively general answer, but I hope that it helps you well a little bit. Now we have Seth's question. So a little bit a little bit different in Seth. Seth Brazier, thanks so much. Uh, not sure where you're from, Seth, but thank you for listening to the show. Seth says, uh, I'm a solid runner, sub three-hour marathon. That's uh, very solid. Well done. 124 half marathon. I've been cycling for two years, and I went from a 305 bike split to 244 in St. George, which is becoming very respectable. Well done. However, I still can't run during the events. In training, I do well and rub seven-minute miles off the bike for 20 to 40 minutes, but in the events, I struggle. My legs feel fresh, but my energy is gone. I'm still nervous on the bike and do most of my training indoors, so I think I tense up too much on the bike, and that adds up to stress for my overall run performance. Do I need more outside time on the bike so I can get less tense, or is there another way to improve on the run? This is a fantastic question. I'm going to tell you a little story to begin. Uh, I, I once coached a wonderful athlete, a guy that's gone on to being very, very successful as an age group, and he won't mind me using his name, Ryan Linden. Ryan is uh, his wife. He's the second best runner in the family. His wife is Des Linden, who's a very good friend of Purple Patch. But when Ryan first joined Purple Patch, he was a 223 or so marathon runner. So obviously very, very good male marathon runner and had no bike experience. He'd been running for a year or two. He went to do his first Ironman and he thought, how slow could I possibly run this marathon? If I run 223, I'm sure I'll run 245 or 250. But he didn't have the running resilient or the riding resilience yet. And his first Ironman that he did, a massive challenge, underwhelming to the nth degree. And he wasn't doing anything wrong. It wasn't that his running training was terribly poor. He just simply didn't have the riding resilience to ride 180 kilometers at the level that he wanted to compete at and then open up the door of opportunity for good running performance. And so it just took time with Ryan. He did tremendous amount of hard work. He was a wonderful athlete to coach. He developed resilience on the bike ride. And of course, what happened? His running performances started to incrementally improve to where he's running sub three hours off the bike, more where we would expect him to be. And so it just took time. And so I think for you, Seth, it might be, number one, a little bit of time to develop the resilience. But there are two other things to look at. Number two, looking at your fueling as well. If you're feeling like it's not mechanical fatigue, musculoskeletal fatigue, and then there could be a component where you're actually just not fueling enough on the bike to keep energy uh, stores up there. If you're just simply running out of energy, what do you need to do with both probably caffeine as one tool and also straight sugar as you're ending the bike and coming onto the run that you can try and get that catalyst? And then the second component, which is um, exactly what you say, riding outdoors. And so when when you're uncomfortable, if you're on a static trainer, you lose all of the stability that naturally has to occur 
as you're riding along a bike. When a bike goes fast outside, it's a very stable machine. And in fact, if you add any input, unless you put input into it, the bike's going to keep going straight. But you're still always managing the little effects of terrain and camber on the road and wind and things like that. And that creates a lot of stability usage of the muscles, the supporting muscles. We also have tension if we're nervous. So ultimately, the only way to overcome that fear is to become at one with your machine. We call it two or three levels of awareness. Number one, being able to sit and control your bicycle. Number two, then navigate through the terrain and the environment, things like the wind. And then number three, deploy your energy and resources on the race and others around you. Well, it all starts with number one. Every athlete needs to become really, really comfortable and at one with controlling their machine. And the only way to do that is to practice. And the only way to practice is to understand what you're looking for. So rather than obsessing about power or heart rate, actually going down to the playground or the parking lot of your school without gravel and getting used to figure of eights and getting comfortable with turning, standing, good posture on the bike, it's not only going to give you the best yield for your fitness, it's also going to take away some of that tension. So I think you're dead right. Ultimately, ultimately, your run performance is directly related to the stress the physical stress and the emotional stress from that bike ride. And so you only have one route to go. Become comfortable, quiet roads, in the playgrounds, a really good investment. And there's a reason that at our pro camp, you'll see them doing figure of eights with our professional athletes, becoming more and more equipped in how to handle their machine in any environment. And so I hope that helps today, guys. The show, change able. And so I now need to shift gears. I need to go and do something else in the workplace until next week have a good one enjoy thanks so much for listening this has been the purple patch podcast if you like what you hear would really appreciate it if you share with your friends and even go the extra mile and head over to apple podcast to subscribe rate and review the show the apple podcast link is in the show notes your support and positive reviews go a huge way in increasing our visibility and also the exposure to time-starved people everywhere who want to integrate sport into life and ultimately thrive. Don't forget, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Cheers! Cheers!